Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome on to a very special Dunked On. It's not that special, I guess. But it is free to listen to. If you are missing us, why haven't you signed up yet for Dunked On Prime? Link is here in the show notes. If the pricing is an issue send us an email dunkedonprime at gmail.com and we do have special circumstances pricing available we're going to get to nuggets lakers game two and that 80 buzzer beater and that mason plumley defensive mistake at the end here but since many of you are going to be listening to this a, a couple days later we're going to get right into talking about the free agent guards here danny and a quick reminder of how we do it we separate out by the five positions and order these by superstar star starter rotation and fringe and look of course at unrestricted and restricted free agents so your call here danny you want to start with point guards or shooting guards let's start with point guards and i think that this is a great example of why the 2020 free agent classes is looked on kind of with with some disdain is that there just aren't that many star caliber players and that is not meant to malign the wonderful fred van vliet van vliet has been an important player on a championship team as recently as last year he can fit in various places because he is a very aggressive defender and he can hit open shots usually and that is great that it is that is a useful part of a team and van vliet is an unrestricted free agent so that that means that he can choose their destiny but he, he is pretty clearly the best point guard on the market especially when you factor in age and he might get paid a serious amount of money but he's not in that you know like top tier you know like when we do point guard rankings he's not gonna be like a top 10 point guard because of the the him alone test is what i call it is like if you throw fed van vliet on a team would you expect that they would have a top half offense or a top 10 offense no they could he's not going to prevent it from happening but you need somebody else to be that guy and when a point guard is not your your best initiator on a successful offense it puts a lot from a team building perspective on everyone else yeah van vliet unrestricted free agent at age 26 pretty young for an unrestricted free agent remember that he got a, a two-year deal for just under 20 million dollars from the raptors that's a restricted free agent in that squeezed summer of 2018 and now he's becoming unrestricted in another summer but i think he's going to get paid and i would have van vliet you know when we did our point guard rankings yeah he's somewhere probably in the depending on what you're looking for you know low teens i guess i should say high teens as far as if you're ranking all the point guards in the league but he's very young and as you mentioned he really can fit into any system and so sometimes it's not even necessarily about the quality of the player as the number of places that they can fit and there are a number of teams that i think could really use his services that are going to have over the mid-level exception now much will depend of course on what those teams are trying to do right where the knicks are one where they're going to have plenty of space they desperately need a point guard their point guard situation has been pretty much atrocious for the last 20 years and he could certainly solidify that position but i don't 
I personally don't think he makes sense for them because going into his prime, as you mentioned, he's not going to be a primary focal point. He's more of a guy who can do some pick and roll work, not a good ISO player, can shoot the ball well, either moving off the ball or as a spot up guy. And then he defends like crazy and really gets into guys and he can play a ton of minutes and he doesn't get hurt. So there's a, he really makes more sense on teams that are really trying to compete now. So as you go through it here, obviously we won't rule out his return to the Raptors. We'll talk about that situation. And I would imagine that he would want to return to the Raptors if the financial offer is competitive, but he's going to have to kind of, I think, have at least the threat of signing elsewhere. Who are those threats? My single favorite Van Vliet destination, if he is going to leave Toronto, is actually Phoenix. And this is a strategy that we really have not seen very often. But we also don't see a team this young, kind of with this kind of cap structure very often. And so the idea behind it to me is, I think Fred Van Vliet is a, is a better than Ricky Rubio. And he is probably the best player that is available at the amount of money that the Suns could have. So the idea is he fits beautifully with Devin Booker. Van Vliet can be the tip of the spear defender, doesn't have have to have the ball in his hands all the time, but can opportunistically. And I think he makes life a lot easier on the, for them on both ends of the floor. And so, yes, it is weird to have Rubio. They duplicate each other. Rubio makes 17 yeah. but, million. But it works out fine when the Suns sign too many point guards, right? It, it does. <laughs> I mean, hey, it worked out <laughs> decently for those players eventually. I mean, they they, uh, they all found is, they all found true. greater success. Um, yeah, but, for, for those who don't remember, by the way, when they had Goran Dragic and Eric Bledsoe, and then they signed Isaiah Thomas as well Yeah, after and then, that. Isaiah Thomas, and eventually they sold, they didn't sell low on Dragic, they sold low on on Isaiah, and then he finds great success in Boston, and then Bledsoe doesn't want to be there anymore after he was the last man standing, and so they end up trading him and maybe passing on De'Aaron Fox, partially because of that reason. Um, But Rubio makes $17 million next season, and then 17-8, it was a three-year contract he signed with the Suns. But to me, if you can get Van Vliet in there, at some point, you know, especially maybe it might take a year, somebody's going to be okay with Ricky Rubio, especially on an expiring contract at that number. And Van Vliet is just, to me, a serious upgrade. And remember, the Suns get one bite at the apple. I'm not sure they'll do better than him. Yeah, and certainly Cameron Payne, who they have on a team option for next year, was really good in the bubble. I wouldn't want to count on that, particularly if you're actually trying to make some noise in the playoffs. You know Van Vliet is well-tested. It looks like the most, though, that the Suns can get to, assuming the cap stays steady at 109, is is about 19 million and i would imagine that the raptors would be willing to go that high uh, and are there any other suitors for him you wanted to talk about before we talk about his situation in Toronto? Well, we talked a little bit about the Knicks, but that was one of the most fortunate things for Van Vliet's free agent value was Tom Thibodeau getting the job there because that means it sounds like the Knicks are going to be in more of a win-now posture. And if they go into next season with the, their current point guards or anything else, it's going to be very hard for them to succeed. And both of us think RJ Barrett is not really ready for prime time yeah. yet. So Van Vliet would really move the needle for them. Now, is moving the needle for the Knicks right now a good idea? I would say no. I think that they need to build the asset base. They need to be patient with this and and see how their young guys develop. But I don't think they're going to see it that way. And this is also where Van Vliet really benefits from the overall shallowness of the free agent market because if, let's say, the Knicks or the Pistons or somebody else wants to get a competent point guard, there just aren't that many other places for them to turn. No, that's true, right? I, I mean, there's Dragic... 
Conley is going to opt in almost certainly you, you guys will see as we go through it it is quite thin and the problem for the Knicks though I guess the argument you would make for the Knicks to get him is we're trying to develop RJ Barrett we're going to build around RJ Barrett also something depends on who they get in the draft but I don't think whoever they get in the draft they're going to just pencil that player in as the starter even if it is a point guard and so as we mentioned Fred Van Vliet can fit well everywhere he can take some of the best guards defensively he can play off the ball space the floor for RJ Barrett if you had to draw up a player in a lab who would fit really well next to RJ Barrett he's probably the guy a high three-point volume guy they can't shoot at all uh and Barrett is not a great shooter so you can put the ball in his hands I don't think Barrett's gonna be worth that but if your plan is to build around him Van Vliet can help you and you can also say hey the Knicks going after guys in 2021 they still would have a max slot if they moved on from Julius Randle even if they do sign Van Vliet but the problem is clearly Toronto would be somewhere he'd rather be than New York you would think and so they'd probably have to go into like the mid-20s on a per year basis well and 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 then I want to make one other argument for the Knicks and that is lottery reform it's that being terrible is not as useful as it used to be and being kind of terrible is a lot more palatable than it used to be so it's still you know an odds game and everything else but being the fifth worst team still gives you a decent chance of having a top pick and i think that some teams especially as you know we see teams jump up in the lottery and everything else i think they're going to become more okay with that especially because they're just there are just fewer there might be fewer hopeless teams now with this change in expectations if i were the knicks and i could get him for like 20 or 21 million a year i might seriously consider that the more i think about it because they're as of right now they've slated to have about 73 million in cap space in the summer of 2021 anyway and if unless they're any good you're not going to get the double max guys go in there unless leon rose who used to be an agent knows something that i don't know but it seems pretty unlikely based on the knicks free agent history uh, and their disappointment as recently as last summer summer of 2019 so if you could get him on a deal that you felt like wasn't so badly overpaying that he wouldn't be movable i think i would make that offer and but i just you i think you got to just have some discipline on it and Going back to Toronto, they, of course, famously are all in on the 2021 plan. They, as of right now, should have about 51 million, assuming that the cap next year is 115 million, which, you know, maybe we'll get some more clarity on that in the next month or so before free agency actually happens of what that is going to be. I I would guess that the Players Association and the league are going to just negotiate what that amount is going to be. So it's not just reliant on the vagaries of what the league revenues are in this weird 2021 season that's coming up so they can probably handle about 20 million a year and still be able to get their way into some max space if they moved on from norman powell or or stretch the last year of his deal which is about 11 million so once it gets over 20 million you start to maybe get a little bit of a pucker factor there if you're the toronto raptors and so my prediction is you know something along the lines of maybe you know malcolm brogdon kind of set the market for this last year brogdon's maybe a little bit more dynamic so something i would say it doesn't go above brogdon money which was like four years 85 also don't be shocked if van vliet returns to the raptors if there's a dip in his 20 in for the first that second year yes. in 21 22 and remember it's that's all based on a percentage of your first year salary so they could actually structure that and make it a little bit cheaper in year two and then it would go back up theoretically to the year year one and year three would be the same and then you bump it in year four and 
the the benefit for the Raptors there is that could theoretically open up a little bit more space. So if they need to get there, but the the other challenge for the Raptors, and you talked about the pucker factor, the other thing that I would be thinking about as the Raptors is they have lofty aspirations, as they should. They are currently the reigning champions. They are to me the best run front office. They have the best coach in the NBA, and they have some really intriguing young talent. Is the richer Van Vliet goes, the it also becomes harder theoretically to pivot and to move and to trade him. And it's not like the Raptors they're they're not asset rich in the way of they don't have a ton of like extra draft picks they don't have young players that they just want to dump they don't have like over overlapping or anything like that so that's a real to me that's a real problem for the Raptors if they start getting bad money on their books and also depending on ownership's willingness to pay there can be functional problems there but the really the thing is maximizing the opportunity of 2021 yeah and the Raptors as of now have with no Marcus Ole and no Serge Ibaka and no Fred Van Vliet project to have about 43 million below the tax and you know they would love to get in below there in a season where there's going to be very little in terms of revenue they may even be in a, a situation due to the coronavirus where they're having to play their home games like the same way the blue jays are just like not even in toronto so can you fit all of those guys for 43 million eh, it's gonna be a little bit tough right so uh, maybe that could if van vliet's price tag gets a little bit too high i mean do you uh, we'll talk more about this in, in the raptors offseason preview actually we probably spent a little bit too much time here on Fred VanVleet but he's to me is probably easily the most fascinating free agent in this class and importantly easily the most fascinating point guard free agent because Mike Connolly he will presumably pick the the wording on this is hard because technically it's an early termination option not a player option but he will play on that option next season because it is yeah, just and, and uh let's let's take a quick break here first before you before I was you're about to transition to Dragic we got we got to get paid here <laughs> <laughs> Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife... And I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Every sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. 
And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to remember slash capspace. We talk about it all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside and things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us yeah, welcome back from the ad a reminder if you are listening to this on dunked on prime you would not have had an ad just now so please check that out link is in the show notes we do also have special circumstances pricing if uh, you're in a difficult situation before the break mike conley's gonna opt in almost certainly 34 million would be insane to opt out of that and then that leaves us with goran Dragic, who i had in the rotation category but now the way he's played in these playoffs all of a sudden i think he does project as a starter does that mean that he's going to go out and get a three-year deal somewhere i don't know and so i think my question to you here danny is is there a team that's really would go after him on something like a three-year deal at like 15 million a year certainly miami has their 2021 plan they're not going to want to go longer than one year you imagine they will have a lucrative one-year offer for him to return but is there something out there that might make him think about not just taking a one-year deal from miami for say 20 million or something like that if the teams that have cap space were behaving let's call it rationally i would say that there isn't really a clear one i mean so detroit could use Goran Dragic, especially if they end up moving on from Derrick Rose. That's something I proposed was the idea that they should tra- sell high on Derrick Rose and sign a point guard. And that seems weird, but that's basically just an asset management play because Rose only has one more year left at, at 7.7 million. But the, the Pistons, the Hornets, presumably with Devontae Graham, I don't like the fit of Dragic and Graham. They're also just too young and too, they're not good enough yet. The Hawks, he doesn't make any sense. And the Knicks are the potential kind of like 
challenge point here because if especially if Van Vliet just wants to go back to the Raptors if he's not really on the market Dragic is the next best point guard available and maybe they could make make a somewhat aggressive offer and they could even front load it if the Knicks really wanted to and then it would be less onerous in future seasons just kind of using using the space a little bit I don't think they'll necessarily do that but and the Suns I, I they that would be going in a specific direction and while I think Fred Van Vliet is a significant enough upgrade of Ruki Rua to do it I do not feel the same way about Dragic for the Suns. Well, and Dragic isn't going to want to go back there anyway. He he seemed uh, very happy to get out of there. So it really seems like it would take a sign and trade. You know, maybe if a team offered him. So so he is going to be thirty four at least as of July first. Those are the numbers that that we have uh, on our sheet. If a team like the Lakers was able to squeeze out enough room below the tax or, or below the apron to give him the full mid level, and they did it over three years, maybe. But even then, you would say just getting 20 million for one year is probably superior so the more i think about it particularly as well as he's played you would imagine that a return to miami would be in the offing and that would vaporize the heat cap space which would be an issue but because they would have about 20 million right now but i don't know who i mean they now of course are going to see themselves as a championship contender next year no matter what happens in the rest of this series against boston and they'll want to keep the momentum going for next year to be really good so that they can then attract a free agent in the summer of 2021 so i would imagine that it seems like this is a marriage that's going to make sense which is crazy considering that the heat were trying to just dump him on the dallas mavericks well and there's another big there's another big reason that i think this makes sense and that's you brought up the idea of being good in 2020 slash 21 but also maintaining 21 cap space is that it allows them theoretically to do something similar with jay crowder if they wanted to and going pulling in the same direction on players like that is actually really advantageous for the heat because i think they can move they can they can make a better team through bird rights than they can through free agency in all likelihood and free agency almost any player they would get would want a multi-year contract and so you know this was kind of the issue remember they tried to trade for Daniel Gallinari and Gallinari didn't want the deal they offered because probably because it wasn't enough locked in long term and so yeah I think it's a, a logical return point for Dragic and the Heat and, and another reason why it's so telling is I, I brought this up with Van Vliet that there isn't much below them is that this free agent class has a lot of veterans with starting experience, but they aren't coming into this with a lot of momentum. And so I think that's a way of talking about some of the other restrict or unrestricted free agents in this point guard class. Well, and now it gets pretty rough there really aren't many guys here at this point where i'm like okay i'll solve the uh, i've got my backup point guard situation solved for sure if i sign this guy there's some flyers certainly but dj augustin at age 32 certainly can still shoot the ball wily pick and roll player but very undersized it could fall off a cliff at any time at that age uh Shaz napier is sort of like the same player as dj augustin except a little bit worse but he's 28 uh, a guy I still think is underrated, uh, but maybe he's uh, someone that the Wolves could look to re-sign to shore up their backup guard situation. Jeff Teague at 32. It's really tough to see where the suitors are for these guys. It really it seems like they could end up anywhere, and all of them could sort of be in that tax pyramid level or less. This is going to be a very important time for bird rights. Maybe the Hawks could bring Teague back as a backup point guard. They did play a little bit better when he was there. And then you've got your Reggie jackson at age 30 howell netto michael carter williams 
Tyler Johnson is really more of a of a shooting guard, but he can guard point guards. And I thought I was good to see him reestablish his career. I think he'll at least work his way into a guaranteed contract, if not above the minimum. He played well. Same thing with Trey Burke, actually, uh, as the Mavs will have an interesting bird right situation uh, on him. And that leaves Rajon Rondo, who again is playing really well in the bubble. He may opt out, and now they would have the Lakers would have early bird rights on him, and they might end up having to pay him a little bit more if they want to bring him back at, at age 34. Seems like something they would want to do given how well he's played in the bowl well and given how few options the lakers have to improve i mean they're, they're in that situation where they don't have a ton of cap space they basically just have the mid-level exception and so retaining your players seems pretty logical we can jump to the, to the restricted because i think well, that- well just want to run through a few more names here sure, if you're looking for a flyer uh brandon knight who played a little bit better at times this year and maybe someone to take a flyer on matthew delvatova as well who still was actually an important player for the Cavs, although he just can't can't make the ball go in the basket anymore and then you've got Emmanuel Moutier who's been coming off a one-year minimum deal in Utah just a when you watch him he doesn't look like he's that bad out there offensively but his passing has never really developed he's a defensive liability so he's another one of these kind of flyer guys that you probably don't want to bring in it's like oh we got backup point guard solved with this guy and then Alfred Payton as a non-guarantee for eight million preliminary reporting seemed to indicate that the Knicks were going to bring him back but if they were to sign a Van Vliet or something, he could potentially become available. So yeah, let's turn to the restricted guys now. Yeah, and no star players, as you would expect from this group. But Chris Dunn has become a more impactful defensive player. He forced a ton of turnovers, worked out well in Jim Boylan's system. I think the Bulls can wield his restricted rights pretty strongly. I think that might end up to be the end game is that Chris Dunn ends up signing his qualifying offer and becomes an unrestricted yeah. free agent. 21. He, he did meet the starter criteria, so he does have a higher qualifying offer offer now than he would have yes and then the other notable restricted free agent is brad wanamaker and wanamaker has done well in the postseason so far boston again i think they can try to squeeze wanamaker and he is an older restricted free agent that's this is something you and i are both deeply critical of these guys that find success in the nba later in their career then he wanamaker is a restricted free agent at 30 and this is really his last chance to get a significant deal and it's in like the worst time possible yeah it is particularly because this is where the free agent process is going to kind of screw him up too maybe we'll see restricted free agents with a shorter time period between the start of free agency and when offer sheets can be delivered and and the clock actually starts ticking on those offer sheets the 48 hours but with the celtics having some tax concerns next year even going something like you know four million a year for one america which i would do i think you you could feel pretty decent about your backup point guard situation if you bring him in particularly the way he shot the ball he's a, a feisty defender doesn't make mistakes that something like that would be great except your problem is if you use part of an exception on him you have to wait for long enough that if the Celtics end up matching then all of a sudden he's gone so this is one where his agent could maybe earn his money if he came to the Celtics and said hey you know I can get this offer for four million and that relationship the Celtics will say no well, that's that's fine we don't want to pay you that we'll let you go now uh, that would be something that would really be a boon for Brad Wanamaker but if I'm the Celtics I'm going to try and just keep that price down as low as I can just to for uh, a cash basis basically 
And and it's a pretty weak group beyond them. Javon Carter's interesting, but he's better defensively, and that's always a challenge for yeah. a point they, guard. He, they really played him more at the two. Yeah, because you want somebody else who can run the offense, and most players who are good enough to do that and are not point guard-sized are starters. And then Frank Jackson flashes absolutely on the Pelicans, and he's still really young at 22. I The problem for me with Jackson is that I just don't trust him to like run the show as a starter or as a backup yet. Yeah. So do you want to, somebody might throw a flyer on him and it might work out. I, I'm not, I'm not closing the door on that abs- at all, but yeah, I'd be challenge. interested to see whether he gets a qualifying offer or not. And if it, if he does, I would, I would take it if I were him, but I, I think they've got enough guys like that where they might want to go in another direction. And he was, he was drafted by the previous regime, uh, and although Alvin Gentry did have a weird affinity for him one guy I really like who's coming off a two-way and we've I don't think we've we've only ever seen one guy coming off a two-way get an offer sheet I think it was yeah Tyrone Wallace where the Clippers matched an offer sheet that was mostly non-guaranteed to him and and Wallace uh, after a promising beginning hasn't really been able to establish his career but Jordan McLaughlin I thought was really good for the Wolves down the end of last season 24 years old shot it pretty well we we went into him in pretty good detail when we talked about the Wolves young players on dunked on a couple of months ago so I it'd be rare for a two-way guy to get an offer sheet it seems like teams just don't think of guys that way but to me I thought he looked like a quality backup point guard and I would try and poach him if anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns you can customize. Things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us if i could ready to talk shooting guards yeah let's do it and you start out on and the unrestricted starter line and this is not exactly an, an inspiring group the most compelling to me is evan fournier fournier has a player option worth 17.2 million and really it's to me a more a question of timing and leverage than anything else so he could become an unrestricted free agent this year maybe secure a long-term deal with the magic they've you know it seems like to be like they've overpaid some of their own guys before though this is not coming off of the same optimism as last season when they were a surprise playoff team and then retained Vooch and Terrence Ross this is a little bit different especially with John Isaac looking like he's going to be out for all of next year uh, and so with Fournier it's again what is the constituency is there are there teams of the those, you know, five or so with cap space that wouldn't be materially better with him. It wouldn't be shocking if the Magic were reluctant to facilitate on a sign and trade, especially if they want to bring him back. So with Fournier, this is maybe even more an agent making their money than the Brad Wanamaker situation because he needs to know what's out there. Agreed. And 
I don't believe it's going to be much. I don't see a team that's going to come up and pay him the $17.5 million. And particularly, you know, would he want to sign for like four years, $15 million. It does seem like he's going to be in a Magic uniform next year, either by opting in or by opting out and having some sort of a, a longer-term deal, maybe at less money. I mean, similar player was Jonas Valanciunas, who is a, about this level of money with the Grizz. He opts out and then signs for about 15 million after rejecting his player option for about 17 million but he added on three more years and it really depends the good news for fournier is he's only 27 so maybe you want to just and you know you're going to have plenty of chances to put up numbers on this magic team next year because they just don't really have anybody else and so i think it is probably a smart move if you can't come to an extension that you like to just opt in and then hit free agency again next year demar Derozan as a player option he you would imagine is almost certainly going to opt in i don't see as you like to say a constituency for him among the cap space teams where he's going to make it in the high 20s or anywhere where he would even get a long-term deal starting you know with like 20 million or so so i mean unless charlotte or new york wants to do something crazy you imagine he'll opt in as well and then kcp i think if especially if the lakers have a lot of success and they'll have plenty of bird rights on him if he wants to opt out of his player option for eight million and try and get more from the lakers you imagine that might be possible uh and caldwell pope again maybe you would have some offers around the mid-level but it feels like he would just return to the lakers i think he's he starts for them he happens to be a clutch sports client purely coincidence uh, that, uh, yeah yeah i guess that is of some import isn't it? yeah potentially and Caldwell pope uh, age 27 so this is a potential chance for him to get a long-term contract and kcp by virtue of an unusual path to this will the lakers will have full board rights on him after the series this is his third season on the lakers so they can offer him you know i'm not saying he's gonna get max or anything crazy like that but they can give him a significant raise if if he has the leverage to demand it and and it actually delivers and then somebody who i think some people might be thinking of in this kind of like starter money realm he had a very good year for dallas is tim hardaway jr and hardaway jr could be a victim of the market circumstances so he has a player option for 19 million and in a different year especially you know starter on a surprising young team and you know he i wasn't running the offense through him but i thought that that he functioned reasonably well defensively but the teams that have space and hardaway jr being 28 i I just i I think that for him it's a little bit of a roll the dice but like fournier i think opting in makes the most sense yeah and i think i still like fournier better than tim hardaway jr although maybe not for dallas specifically not that dallas would be acquiring fournier but hardaway jr did take a major step forward this year he still is not quite what the mavs need on the wing and the problem is if he opts out and he wants a long-term deal with the mavs that they have their 2021 plan as well and i think he could really mess that up now we've seen it they overpaid dwight powell in this exact same situation last year so it wouldn't shock me if they gave him some kind of a long-term deal but i certainly think that would be an extremely poor decision to do that and certainly if hardaway had something where you know he was getting 15 million a year for three or four years somewhere else then i'd say opt out i don't think ultimately despite the fact that he had a much better year than expected that he's going to want to opt out of almost 19 million dollars for next year to me the maybe the most interesting free agent in all of shooting guards there are a couple of potential contenders for me is west matthews and matthews took the minimum to return to wisconsin to play with the bucks started 67 games on the league's best regular season team and at 33 turning 34 pretty soon actually in october 
Matthews could run into a few of the different biases that end up hurting a player's value. One of them is once a guy takes the minimum, it can often be hard to really break that, even if it was yep. below market when he did it the first time. can be a real challenge. And the other one is, old, even, even for wings, older players generally, they don't get longer-term contracts. They don't really get that kind of commitment. And so the Bucks only have non-bird rights on Matthews at, you know, and at, at 100, basically a 20% raise, which is not much money. Theoretically, they could dip into the mid-level with him, though that means they can't use the mid-level anywhere else. So I'm wondering where the offers will be. I still really like Wes Matthews, though. Yeah, in terms of the minutes, I think he's probably at 33 now, a little overstretched as a starter, but certainly someone who can come in, be on a good team as part of the rotation. It does. This one does seem to have the, you know, maybe he gets a nominal raise. Well, and also think about how screwed the Bucks would be without him. I mean, they could throw DiVincenzo in and some other guys, but I, they don't, they, the rotational depth would be hurt dramatically. Yeah, I mean, considering he's the only guy on their team who could even pretend to guard Jimmy Butler adequately, and Jimmy Butler is not exactly the most difficult wing superstar to guard. Yeah, I, th- I do think that they should try to keep him around and they can manage his minutes and hopefully get something out of him in the playoffs jordan clarkson at age 28 does seem like another one where it augurs him going back to the utah jazz rather than them trying to use their mid-level to replace him they desperately need someone who can play a little bit more backup point guard be a scorer he can also attack off the dribble they just kind of need that microwave score their bench looked a lot better once he came in and he he had a decent playoff run he showed more defensively than he had previously so i think really the question becomes you know they'll have full bird rights on him they do some tax issues the question becomes is it going to be a one-year deal for him in utah you know i think building on the lesson of 2018 we could see a lot of these guys just resigning with their teams for one year and that that kind of seems like it to me i don't know if there's a team out there that's going to be like yeah here's a a four-year full mid-level deal in particular because as you and i talked about last week when we really went through all the teams there really aren't that many teams who can just give a full mid-level contract and not have to worry about the tax yeah that's a great point my one of my favorite free agents this year and i think he will be undervalued by the market is justin holiday holiday just completed his age 30 season for the pacers he came off the bench but had 59 percent true shooting on 13 usage i think that usage could ramp up he plays capable defense can yeah I, I don't think it could ramp up personally, but I, I think he's still quite valuable even without that. Yeah, I mean, playing, I, even though, even so, I, th- I think they can they can provide value to a team and be a part of the rotation, whether he starts or comes off the bench. And Indiana has a lot of uncertainty in their future. They need him desperately just to complete the rotation, especially with, with Jeremy Lamb's bad injury, which really was an, an underappreciated factor for them. So I, wa- I really wonder who's going to make him offers, but I, I could see you know somebody like Atlanta, I think, they could be helped he could be a part of a rotation almost anywhere and be useful and what holiday and this kind of ties in with goran Dragic and a few other guys what does he want does he want to be have a smaller role and probably smaller money but be on a legit championship contender those offers should be there if he wants maybe a larger role maybe it can't be too much larger but maybe that can be there does he want to stay in indiana keep playing with playing keep playing with his brother and be a part of a, a good team sure that that should be there too so i wonder what's going to be there and with players like holiday since the money isn't going to be good anyway, would they potentially, does it become more possible to take a little bit less to play somewhere on a better team? And Holiday, you know, he's been on competitive teams before. He was in, involved in the Warriors in 14-15 and then was, you know, has, has kind of, you know, danced around a little bit since then, made the playoffs with the Pacers this year. So maybe he would value, you know, while he's still a real contributor, being on a really good team again. 
the Pacers situation with him he signed one year for the room exception 4.8 million last year so they can give him 120 percent raise off of that they also could just dip into their full mid-level exception to give him more go up to around nine million to start but their problem is that they only have seven million dollars below the tax and basically just about everybody and their brother still under contract for this team maybe you could say they'd move on from doug mcdermott but as we've noted they're a little light on the wings maybe they move victor oladipo maybe they move one of turner or sabonis and they save some money there and that could enable them to bring back holiday but yeah it is interesting i mean basically they can offer him about the same as the taxpayer mid-level this year with that 120 percent raise unless they and that you know assuming their roster stays the same that's probably about all they could do and still have breathing room under the tax and they may even not even want to give get that close to the tax given some of the the issues with herb simon's businesses uh malls not doing that well these days i hear so it may be an issue where they either have to move someone or there would be an offer and i think you know a, a team like say golden state if they are going to spend but basically any contender you know he's pretty similar to like a garrett temple from last year right around that room exception taxpayer mid-level exception seems like his market and i, I think maybe he's even is slightly undervalued at that any, anyone else that you really want to hit on here we can kind of roll through some of the rest of these guys pretty quickly the nets have a five million dollar team option on garrett temple i like temple a lot i think that he can fit in well on a good team but remember that with the cap and tax numbers going down off of expectations that makes temple significantly more expensive for the nets especially if joe harris comes back maybe and i'm sure they'll have an expectation of where that could potentially go so maybe they even pick up temple's option and then and then try to move him or they could pick him up and keep him or just just let it go but i like temple a lot yeah so many of these guys are really sort of eye of the beholder you've got kent Bazemore, who actually played pretty well in sacramento revitalized his career avery bradley has a player option we'll see again it seems he's more likely to opt into that particularly with him not playing in the bubble and alec burks has been on minimums the last year and maybe philly would try to bring him back although they don't have much in terms of bird rights he's could be a decent second unit creator not a, a starting level of player at this point you know you can't imagine again I, I don't see any of these guys getting much more than the taxpayer in the mid-level at this point it's really just you know who do you want to go after and also i don't see a lot of these guys getting more than one year deals i think it's really going to be very similar to 2018 langston galloway i mean i think we've basically forgotten that basketball gets played in detroit at this point but he quietly had a very nice year under Dwayne casey they do have cap space which partially relies on him not being there anymore i'm sure he would like to go back to detroit because uh, he's done well there with Dwayne casey and he can shoot the ball get out in transition guard some smaller players but not really a pick and roll point guard either so another one of these guys who you know can play a role potentially on a good team he's never really been on a good team but he reestablished his career in detroit it seems like he's had like norman Polly's had so many yo-yos in terms of what you thought his value was going to be anybody else you wanted to hit on Bryn Forbes we've like basically never discussed yeah potential you know shooting shooting guard off the bench Austin Rivers I think that he well I guess we're not going to discuss him now either <laughs> no, that's what I'm talking about Bryn <laughs> a potential shooting guard off the bench that is well, that is our dunk down I mean analysis. The pro- the, to me the problem with Forbes is he's a capable shooter but I don't love him as a creator and ball handler and he's also so small that yeah is it a, a, a guard that can be a small part of your rotation sure but would I go crazy for him no not particularly and i think that as san San antonio now that they have so many more guards potentially in their rotation potentially even starting three of them next year i I just 
I, I, it's hard for me to get super enthused about Bryn Forbes. Yeah, he is 26, and he has started in the league, and he is also a decent fit next to all those young guards that they have in San Antonio. It feels like another one where he might just go back there. But, I mean, he can shoot the ball really well. It's just, you know, the limitations that you mentioned. He's not great defensively either. Tony Snell is clearly going to opt in. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about Austin Rivers. Because yeah, uh, yeah, so Rivers right. has a, a player option worth... 2.4 million to me he should decline that and whether he stays with the Rockets or not is is unclear because I don't think they have much capacity to pay if they're going to e- either go under the luxury tax or stay close to it though they will have more bird rights it's just I just don't think they they're going to spend on anybody really and Rivers could help out a rotation I also think that his absence will be important potentially in Houston as they're looking for capable players and yeah I think he could help out a rotation I don't but but again like he'll be unrestricted but remember there are so few teams that have cap space and is you know is he worth a full mid-level or a portion of a mid-level yeah maybe but then there's the opportunity cost of if, if you use like three to four million of that on him well then you don't have as much to use on anybody else and i don't i don't know that rivers transforms the rotation enough to to be worth to to really do that sort of thing so maybe he'll end up taking less to be on a better team I don't think he gets any offers above the minimum personally. He's he's got that same kind of stigma. If he didn't get anything above the minimum last year, why is he going to get it this year? Fair point. Pat Connaughton, another rotation guy coming off a minimum contract in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, there may be some changes coming there, but you know, I think of Connaughton again. It, it's really all eye of the beholder here, but and when you consider the veterans minimums, particularly for older guys, you know, it's just hard especially if you got a team that's facing tax concerns to go a one-year veterans minimum versus paying a guy four million the tax savings are so much more than that well, and so let's and let's clarify this for people who are less familiar if you sign a player a veteran for the minimum then they they count towards your towards your books and the tax at the two-year minimum they do this as a way to not punish teams for signing older players and but if it is a multi-year minimum contract, even if you're not paying them more than the minimum, a multi-year minimum, they count at their full salary as opposed to that partially subsidized salary. Etuan Moore at age 31 kind of got yanked around the last few years in the Alvin Gentry rotation roulette. Tried to up his three-point volume this year as trademark floater went awry a little bit more than normal. Not quite the defender that he used to be. Another guy you think might be looking at veterans minimum-ish. Maybe he could have gotten more in a different market. There's also Kyle Korver. You would think probably at this point for Korver, maybe he comes back in Milwaukee for the vet minimum, but at 39, be interested to see whether he's going to continue continuous career he doesn't say anything about retiring yet so it seems like he'd like to and rodney hood is gonna opt into his player option and then you've got a few other fringe guys alan crab courtney lee at age 34 gerald green missed all the year with a, a broken foot marco bellinelli is 34 wayne ellington is a possible i would say probable non-guarantee at 8 million for this year age 33 someone that we've liked more than a, a lot of people but i also do you see him getting above the minimum at this point it's nope. i mean a few of these guys you know maybe like three out of these 10 guys that we talked to will but it's really hard for me to know who those are are, are gonna be and uh specific destinations for these guys it's pretty hard to figure out because it's not like there are teams that have specific needs for these guys that many of them are very similar to one another and 
there's also all of these potential tax issues for some of these teams. We don't know who's going to be willing to spend and who isn't. Let's talk the restricted free agents here, though. And Bogdan Bogdanovich, his situation now has become interesting with Monty McNair in town. There's reporting that the Kings intended to go into the high teens when Vlade Divac was there to re-sign him. Maybe that could change. Maybe his return could depend on a move involving buddy healed to open up some space they have space below what the tax is supposed to be there's no indication that they're going to be in particularly difficult financial strains any more than anyone else but the question then becomes what is the team that's going to give him an offer sheet well what do you think about bogdanovich on the hawks i think he could be a, a nice complimentary ball handler for them not the greatest defender in the world which becomes a challenge with some of their stuff but i think that he could be a, an upgrade over over herder and some of the other options they have and especially with this weak class maybe he ends up getting you know what ends up looking like a a reasonable contract and Bogdanovich is 27 probably going to get some good years out of him I think Atlanta is the most compelling of those potential options you know what I might consider if I were the Hawks offer him because an offer sheet has to be at least two years but it doesn't have to be guaranteed I might offer him a two-year offer sheet 22 million a year second year non-guaranteed something something along those lines where it really makes it painful for the Kings to have to match Bogdanovich you're not hurting your cap space beyond 2021 he definitely can help you this year he's probably you know he's a pretty decent defender as you mentioned he can shoot off the ball he can run some pick and roll give him a secondary ball handler as well he'll be a massive upgrade likely on the guys they had on the wing last year they have nothing really nothing else to do with their space he's 27 so that you could and then you'd have hopefully have his guarantee date be late enough next year that you could see whether you, know, you wanted to replace him they don't have anything else in terms of like the real three and d guy that they need they're hoping that hunter and register can develop into that player why not do something like that what do you think of that idea I think it's a great idea for them. And with Bogdanovich, it really depends on what the Kings are willing to do otherwise. And also for Bogdanovich, it could be a potential counter to something that you and I have lamented of the older restricted free agent, which is then you could get back out on the market fairly soon. And even if the Kings match, then you're still getting out there pretty soon, which is better than having to wait until you're like 33. And especially if the money is more limited this year. Sure. I think that's a totally, it's a totally reasonable offer for the Hawks to make. And whether Bogdanovich should accept it depends on what the Kings have on the table. But let's jump to, uh, there are a couple other lower end restricted free agents. Well, well so so I get uh, one more thing here. Sure. Any, anybody, any other potential suitors for Bogdanovich? I think he's a really interesting guy. So I, I want to <sighs> I don't, make I don't sure love him for him. the Pistons. Yeah, I, I, so if, to me, if you were the Knicks or the Hornets or one of those teams and you want to be competitive, more competitive in the short term, yeah, he'd help you. But is that like, I, I would think more in the lines of that Hawks offer where you're not committing yourself yeah. long term. Phoenix? I don't love him alongside Booker. It's not, not certainly not like the worst way that they can spend their money, but I don't love the fit. Do you? I mean, I think those guys could play together in the backcourt and you could have a, a kind of a three-man backcourt rotation with Rubio, him and Booker. Suns probably could use something more at the, at the four. And you've got the problem where they're trying to really get better next year. So the beauty of the Hawks thing is they still have another 20 million that they can spend going after unrestricted free agents. And they got more money than they know what to do with. The Suns have a much higher opportunity cost if they were to do an offer sheet I mean, maybe there's a team that might be interested in kind of going the brogdon route with bogdanovich i don't think they would it would necessarily be a first rounder but maybe it could be you know two decent seconds or something like that in a sign and trade uh but 
of course usually most often is that he's going to return to the kings and you would imagine you know something in the 15 to 17 million dollar a year range is where that's going to end up uh it's just a question bogdanovich also though has a higher qualifying offer than the typical player does 125 percent of his prior salary but his prior salary is almost 10 million so it's not completely if his his long-term offer isn't much above you know that 12 million or so that he would get in his qualifying offer then it's very easy for him to say now i'll just wait another year and be unrestricted next year take that qualifying offer so there is pressure on the kings to come with a solid offer for multi-year that's you know be 15 million or above all right so sorry we're uh, he's a really interesting no no i'm I'm happy i'm happy you brought that up get through that now now we can uh we're running long here so let's uh let's see if we can breeze through the rest of these guys i guess we we got malik beasley to talk about as well uh somewhat similar situation to bogdanovich younger not as good in my opinion but he shot it really well in whatever it was the seven games that he played with minnesota they gave up a first round pick to get him he turned down three years 30 million from the nuggets and so you imagine they're going to be pretty aggressive in negotiating but the wolves of course have plenty of tax concerns as well they also are going to want to be able to re-sign Juan Hernan Gomez who we talked about last week so this will be an interesting one here with Minnesota their constraints not much room for them basically without Beasley or Hernan Gomez on the books They've got 23 million below the tax. Remember, this is also a team that's they're trying to sell right now, and so there might not be as much appetite for being right up at the tax and, and losing a bunch of money this year. But you know, Beasley and Hernan Gomez together, you should be able to get that done for 23 million. I think you know the Wolves' offer is probably going to be something in the 12 million a year, and he's going to want 16. And it will be really hard for that offer to come. I mean, he's probably hoping for the Hawks or the Hornets to be that team, but I am unclear, especially if they think Minnesota is going to match. So maybe you run into that circumstance of the only way to get him is to over to overbid, and I don't think either of those teams is going to overbid on Malik Beasley. Yeah, this is one that I could see really dragging oh, out, particularly yeah. with, with clutch sports and you know but i I imagine it's going to end up somewhere in like the 40 million guaranteed range and then d'anthony melton is a challenging circumstance i mean i i really like him as a kind of second unit guard if he can ever get a better jump shot maybe he can become a little bit more than that but at age 22 you know i would absolutely roll the dice on him if i were if i were a different team and at the same point though the opportunity cost is here so like if you make an offer sheet to melton that memphis is going to match then you lose out on a lot of other potential uses of your mid-level so maybe a younger less flexible team could go after it and I, I hope he's not undervalued by the market because I like Melton a lot and I think he he's earned the opportunity to get to get paid as a restricted free agent yeah and a team that looked at his spot up shooting numbers which were low volume but pretty good and took out his like I think he was like 17 out of 70 on jumpers off the dribble this year uh, might be more enamored of his shooting and I don't think he's a starting guard necessarily but you know very solid third guard has some point guard skills solid on the fast break in a normal market I think you could see him getting an offer sheet around the mid-level I don't think the offer sheet is going to come though again because those teams that are trying to use the mid-level they want to get an answer right away they want to have a bird in the hand and having to wait for the offer sheet process to resolve doesn't make a ton of sense and oh and one other big problem for melton he is a restricted free agent after just his second year. So signing a one-year deal for him is much less palatable because then he would be a restricted free agent again. So that happened to Matthew Delvadova. It's happened to a few players before, but he, I think he would probably want to just line something up beyond that. Though being a restricted free agent again in 2021 is a lot better than being a restricted free agent right now. 
Sterling Braun hasn't really been in the rotation, but I think he could get a, a chance as a, a backup 3 and D type of player on another team. He's got to kind of just cut out some of the crap in his game, though, and focus on you know the role that needs to be played. Damian Dotson, I have him higher than a lot of people actually have him classified as a rotation player. He shoots it reasonably well. He plays very, very hard. He's 26, so a little bit older, but maybe someone that the Knicks don't seem to value that much. I, I would be interested in bringing him in. Again, it, it just, I, 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 as I go through, I can't wait for the mock off season to see what's going to happen i'm going to have so many offers to choose from that are like the minimum or like the taxpayer mid-level basically as as the player agent so it's just there doesn't seem to be enough money around for teams to just kind of take flyers on guys that you might like to pay them a little bit more than might be expected and then among guys who are on two ways garrison matthews has shown a lot of shooting ability in very limited time at 24 year old with the wizards that's probably about it about it i mean there's a couple other guys that like okay like mariel shayok can really shoot it but he's 25 and pretty unathletic with the sixers and quindary witherspoon i'm sorry weatherspoon uh who showed a lot of defensive chops in the bubble for the spurs i would imagine they'll probably just you know bring him back on a on a nba contract with a bunch of non-guarantees on it or something like that well and, but, one and of- he's he's a guy i might target with you know a guaranteed veteran you know minimum offer sheet or something like that like teams should think about those for two-way guys and one other guy we should mention though it's because we don't think he's going to be free agent is reggie bullock he has a 4.2 million dollar full guarantee or a partial guarantee for about a million for a million dollars and the knicks should pick that up so that's that's why we didn't talk yeah. about him and and reporting has indicated that they plan yes to. so that's why we didn't talk about him i just want to make sure with people like hey why didn't you talk about reggie we both really like him too reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, let's turn now to, I wouldn't quite call it a classic game too because I didn't think it was an incredibly well-played game, but certainly a classic ending with Anthony Davis hitting a playoff buzzer-beating three-pointer to beat the always game Denver Nuggets. And I think we, there's much to discuss from this game, but I think we got to get right to that last play, of course. Yeah. And we saw Mike Malone change his defensive personnel for that last play. He brought in Mason Plumley, who is, you and I both criticized him, his use as a defensive replacement. And this to me was an an unforgivable mistake. I mean, so basically Mason Plumley thought there might be a switch. I I presume they had him in because they were worried about the lob to to Davis because considering it was 2.1 seconds left for that last throw in. But Plumlee orders a switch when no screen occurs. Davis didn't even run that close to LeBron James. He ran, you know, in the vicinity, but not close. Didn't communicate that switch and didn't particularly guard LeBron James. So Anthony Davis just runs scot-free to the three-point line. Nikola Jokic reacts out to him. But AD, full credit to him, he absolutely drills the three-point shot. Yeah, great shot by him and certainly to have a guy at that size who can shoot on the move one of the underrated stories of this postseason has been ad finding his shot he started hitting a bunch of pick and pops in the portland series and right now he's really on fire from both two-point range and he hit some big threes he had another big step back three at the end of the clock as the lakers went to the clogged toilet offense in the last few minutes 
And yeah, it really just did not make a ton of sense. They wanted, I guess, to put Jokic on the passer, who ended up being Rondo, who actually came in to replace Caruso, who had just missed a three-pointer. We'll, we'll get to the, the whole patchwork quilt of those last couple of minutes uh, in a moment. But yeah, I mean, it really didn't make any sense. I guess there's some footage that maybe, you know, Grant and Plumlee had talked about Plumlee potentially helping him on LeBron if the ball went there. But I mean, where LeBron was, which was probably 18 feet from the basket, kind of almost trying to post up, the ball is deep in the corner off, off of that Murray shot block and attempted save on Danny Green. So they didn't have a great angle to throw it for the lob or anything underneath. And I mean, when there's no screen, I mean, AD never came within probably eight feet of LeBron James and only just ran to LeBron and you know maybe that's the gravity of LeBron and LeBron definitely has a psychological effect on guys but I mean you come in the game and this was like Daniel Ewing level of stuff here to give up this three-pointer at the end by a guy who just ran in a straight line without any kind of a screen or anything and got wide open right and I think that it well that play obviously worked out incredibly well for the Lakers with with the 105-103 win but also it this game I mean the ending of it I think it checked a couple of boxes in terms of stuff you and I have been talking about for a long time I mean the Mason Plumlee defensive sub the importance of you know kind of understanding and unifying your defensive approach during those minutes it's 2.1 seconds like 2.1 seconds a team can't do a lot you know like it's very hard for the inbounder to inbound it and get the ball back barring a massive mistake for example that's one that's one thing you can do there but the lakers the other part of it was the lakers getting bailed out of horrendous crunch time offense by a series of ridiculous shots and then that one mistake by the denver nuggets they were they were abysmal in the end of this game certainly the offensive process was abysmal and they do have talented players who were able to hit the impossible shots that that terrible offense generated but this is something we focused on since at least december of the lakers with lebron at the helm once it gets under four minutes to go treating every possession like they have a four-point lead with one minute remaining and just not getting any kind of good shots but kcp hit an impossible leaner in the corner off a, a pass from rondo that was way off target rondo hits a step back through at the end of the clock davis hits a step back three at the end of the clock they got three of those in a row and they also got a three from danny green which was a better shot that was open after the nuggets took an 87 86 lead and now those that's really all they were getting and then so finally the lakers with about two minutes to go start going a little faster and they tried to go to the lebron small pick and roll kcp got a pick and pop that was a little bit better a process but it really was pretty remarkable and then whenever the nuggets would threaten then they would be like oh yeah right we should actually run so, so real offense here but the, the process was not good at all i didn't think lebron was good at the end of the game although he did have a huge part in the, the lakers getting the offensive rebound before the ad shot and i think we should just you want to just run through some of these crazy possessions here at, at the end of the game because it really went back and forth with Jokic tipping in a Murray air ball, an incredible tip in that gave Denver the lead with about 30 seconds left. That possession, PJ Dozier was basically quivering as he was trying to dribble the ball and enter it into Jokic. Why he was in the game, I have no idea whatsoever down the stretch. So they kind of got away with that. Uh, and then the LeBron AD pick and roll on the other end, Jokic was shaded so far over to LeBron, he just threw it to AD. They were kind of playing an ice coverage and AD just went right by 
Ty Dozier at the top who was coming off of KCP he was in an awkward situation I think defensively and AD hit a great floater to give the Lakers the lead and then the Nuggets went right back to that same Jokic post-up thing it was like a carbon copy of the shot that he hit over Rudy Gobert to win game seven against the Jazz yeah it really was and then you had the you had Caruso uh, the, the ball kicked around and the ball went to Caruso he misses the corner three and no no it was, it was at the top of the key oh, it was to- oh you're right you're right that was why yeah. I was thinking of the one couple possessions before you're yeah right. they they ran the small the LeBron small pick and roll to get him onto Jamal Murray got a drive LeBron had to kick it out they swung it around Caruso it was wide open up top but I and Caruso shot it okay in these playoffs but I really was very surprised that on that possession that the Lakers didn't try to get a better shooters in the game and I mean they did have Danny Green and KCP so maybe there isn't a better shooter frankly than than Caruso I'm not sure about that but uh and Malone shockingly did not go to Mason Plumlee as a defensive replacement as he always does and I don't know why he didn't do that maybe he just uh, he seems to be very loyal and just wants to stick with whoever got him the comeback and Mm -hmm. they played pretty good defense well and not and not only that that I mean he was calcified by that point but not having Gary Harris on the floor for either this possession or the what ended up being the final possession yeah that's completely insane too I mean Gary Harris is among the best defensive two guards in basketball and PJ Dozier I'm sorry like he had one nice and one going at AD he also was one of five from the foul line because he was terrified to be out there and I mean he made a couple of plays defensively but he just happened to be out there when the Nuggets made their run at the start of the fourth but I didn't think that he had a ton to do with it I mean was there some great defense that he was playing during that stretch I mean, that I he, missed? he drew a charge and had uh he had one had had a steal and a block um but I don't think he was like I don't think Dozier was particularly impressive and it's not like it's some sort of trade-off with Gary Harris where yeah Gary Harris is limited offensively we've talked about that before in this game he was one for yeah, six not Nuggets. as limited as Dozier though exactly and and Harris has an established defensive value there and so it's not like Dozier is such a good shooter where oh my god he's gonna he's creating all these openings within the Lakers defense because they have to defend him all the way out there and so I think that's a to me from a process standpoint it's it's strange to you know there's this idea I've criticized Nate McMillan for this sometimes it works out for for the Pacers the last couple years and is that the idea that just because somebody was in when things went well doesn't mean they were the reason things went well and then when a lot of times when backups go on a run and then you bring that guy in against and then that guy stays in against starters well things don't work out as well and Dozier missing four free throws isn't quite the same thing because he could have you know he could have made some of those though he did look as you said absolutely petrified and yeah I mean you even though the Nuggets offense was terrible when Gary Harris was on the floor Gary Harris is a better player in just about every single way and it was crazy with that they didn't go with like a theory with because I mean Porter Jr. had some defensive limitations had five yeah, fouls he could have been out there on an offense only possession though that absolutely absolutely it could have helped and especially when it's an offense only possession there were a couple of like that, that one when Jokic when Jokic hit the shot with 20 seconds to go if Jokic misses that shot you're going to foul anyway Anyway, so you might as well have your best offensive personnel on the floor. You know, it's it's not yeah. even like a complicated, challenging situation. The other team is ahead by one point. If you miss the shot and they get the rebound, then you get there. So you have your five best offensive players on the floor. You do run the risk, theoretically, of the other team going no timeout. But still, I mean, that that's a little bit ridiculous. And then not bringing in your five best defensive players when it is obviously a defense-only possession is completely ludicrous. And um, before, 
like, but, well, no, let's let's do the end, and then I want to talk about the Lakers, the the process and their shot distribution over the last five minutes. Yeah, I mean that's that's about all I've got on that on that end. So well, dude, we should talk about yeah. so Danny Green gets the offensive rebound, and then the reaction. I thought Jamal Murray fouled Danny Green at first, and no, it was a completely clean block. It was a little bit reminiscent of the block that Harden had on Lou Dort toward you know in in that at the in game seven of that series, where it was just like a kind of a recovery on the side yeah. and caught the ball. Beautiful job by Jamal Murray, and then that's why the the inbound was in such a weird spot was because of where the block occurred yeah but it, it was all i thought the lakers did a great job of something that we talk about a lot when you're down send everybody to the glass they had danny green in there their guards actually getting offensive rebounds was a huge part of, of what kept them going in this game and lebron got it was right under the rim after he had driven he jumped as high as he could and kept it alive so it was uh the Nuggets couldn't secure that defensive board, and they'll be thinking about that a lot too. And I mean, Danny Green had no angle on that shot. I mean, he there was probably three seconds left or something when he took it. But ironically, they would have been better off probably just letting him shoot that instead of blocking it. But uh, in any event, it was a kind of mistake-filled end to what I thought was a really mistake-filled game as we'll move into talking about the rest of it now. Well, just briefly before we get into the big picture stuff, I want to do the Lakers shot chart from the last five minutes. So they had zero shots at the rim, zero shots in the restricted area. They had one floater floater range shot. They took three mid-rangers, only one of those went in, and then they had six threes, two of which went in, both of which I would say were incredibly fortunate makes. You know, like there was the, the KCP shot and the and the Anthony Davis one that was the game winner. And it wasn't just, oh, they didn't get any shots in the restricted area. The Lakers weren't getting to the free throw line. When going through the box score, their last free throw attempts of this game occurred with 4.59 left. That was Anthony Davis got fouled by Jokic and that those two shots. And so they they just weren't driving too much to the basket. They, and, and then the other thing that was a big problem for the Lakers throughout this one, and I think it was actually in some ways you could argue, well, it's existed before this, but it was fueled by LeBron hitting a bunch of jump shots in the early part of the game, was there was a lot of LeBron isoing and driving and everybody else just standing around. And like LeBron is one of the best passers in NBA history. If all you're doing is standing still, you're not giving him angles and that's something it's a direct you see it in direct juxtaposition with the Nuggets who when Jokic has the ball they're moving all around they're trying to cause mistakes they're they're getting guys all around and it's just like well it's it's hard for LeBron in that circumstance he's driving often against two or three guys because somebody else is standing around the basket and nobody is moving so you're trying to try to pass the ball through somebody else usually yeah I mean there is a danger of let's stand around and watch LeBron do something and when he hit his first three three pointers it was looking like that strategy was going to work but then I think he missed his last five after that the other thing that I thought the Nuggets did much better in this game was protect the basket they allowed only 19 shots at the rim and they kept the Lakers off the foul line a lot more too only 19 free throw attempts Lakers were 13 of 36 from three 36 percent which is you know about average but I thought some of the ones they made were ridiculously difficult attempts and so the Nuggets defense was definitely good enough to win in this game in particular because they forced 23 turnovers including 12 steals and this game overall with the Nuggets 19 turnovers I posited that I couldn't remember the last time I saw an NBA game with both teams over 20% turnovers and in fact the Lakers finished with 25% turnovers and the Nuggets with 22% and KP tweeted back at me that the highest game in the playoffs was like 19% combined so this was easily the most blunder filled game of the playoffs then you throw in some of the crazy fouling 
feeling that the Lakers did clearly Dwight Howard was not particularly useful in that regard I thought his one-on-one defense against Jokic was good when he wasn't fouling but I mean they had so many times that they fouled Nikola Jokic in this game even just on like plays where he was dribbling around it seemed like almost that the refs perhaps at the behest of the Denver Nuggets so one of those little sending a tape to the league type of things just to show that like Howard really was playing pretty dirty in game one and that they wanted to clean that up and I'm glad that they did because Howard really was getting away with a little bit too much I thought in game one um so I really I mean I said it after the first game when we saw 25 Lakers free throws in the second quarter this has been an ugly series overall which is kind of a bummer with all the talent that's on the floor yeah it is kind of a bummer but also I mean I thought it made this game closer you know it made it more interesting <laughs> and, and and the Lakers I mean that you brought up the the turnovers I mean that that changed some of the possession game but then going the other way the Lakers had 13 offensive rebounds that was 37 percent of the misses that they had in the game and you know the Nuggets they they had 27 percent offensive rebound right that is very good but still not nearly as good as what the Lakers did so that kind of went back the other way a lot of turnovers then a lot of just like weird like like so there was this stretch at the beginning of the fourth quarter and I know AD scored a scored a series of points there where it was just like it was kind of the equivalent of what happened late where it was just like stand around and watch watch a star play except that it was AD and not LeBron he was taking a bunch of jump shots some of which went in some of which didn't and then so that and also they weren't challenging the Nuggets personnel that was a lineup that had Jamal Murray and Dozier Murray was in like it was just such a weird lineup for Denver and the Lakers weren't challenging them at all you know it's not like it was a particularly strong offensive group they could have I think they could have given Jamal Murray a little extra attention and that's a part of why Mason Plumlee ended up being plus one in this game was just that I thought after they had some really interesting success late in the first quarter when it was AD and not LeBron I thought that that lineup actually really did a nice job for the Lakers as they built up an eight-point lead at the end of the first quarter, then it, it didn't really have that verve after that. And the lineup that, that started the fourth was a little bit more stagnant. And then that, I think it was the beginning of the fourth that had one of those extended stretches where it was like Kyle Kuzma and Michael Porter Jr. going mano a mano, one of the weird oh, parts, yeah. one of the weird parts of this game. And so like, I think that this was, you know, the, this was a game that Denver, not that they had like that, they, that they necessarily like deserved, though I think they had a very good chance to win it, but I thought the Lakers were sloppy and I thought that the Nuggets had a chance. And when you are the underdog, both in talent and theoretically in the series, these are the types of, you, sometimes you have to win a couple of them lucky and ugly. And that isn't meant to denigrate what the Nuggets did. I thought there were certain elements of this defensively in particular that they did very well, but have to seize those chances because there will probably be another game like game one, at least in broad strokes in the series. And if that happens now, the Nuggets have to win four to five and that becomes a big problem. Yeah. And the Nuggets certainly have had the benefit of some pretty good luck in close games but uh that ran out as soon as they inserted mason Plumley at the end and jamal murray this is incredible danny this might be even more ridiculous than the Embiid one from game seven against the raptors last year murray at 25 points eight of 19 didn't really have it going from three two for nine plus 16 in 44 minutes and they lost by two they got outscored by 18 points in the four minutes that Jamal Murray didn't play. Unreal. And a lot of that was those uh, end of the first, you know, uh, end of the third quarter units where LeBron was off the floor as well. That's where uh, AD really, uh, and those groups centered around him were able to eat. And uh, that's just, 
it shows you just how reliant they are on Jamal Murray. And I think the, where they miss Will Barton a lot too, to just have one more guy who, and certainly there's some shooting luck. I mean, anytime you know, for a team to even score 18 points in four minutes, not to mention the other team not scoring at all, uh, is incredible. So a lot of that's not on Jamal Murray. You know, it wasn't, he didn't make the Lakers make all their shots when he was out of the game. Uh, so a, a fair amount of that is bad luck, but still that's an incredible statistic. So going a little bit macro here, what do you take away from this game from I, like either team's perspective? Are there any adjustments? Like, I don't think that, I mean, other than playing your best players more often, like, I thought that the Nuggets defense looked better. They had a couple of bad, you know, semi-transition, you know, failures, but not nearly as many as they had in game one I thought that generally the, the the Lakers had to work hard for their shots especially in the half court and so like I mean other than playing the right guys I, I don't know that there's too much maybe more aggressively tacking uh, and they did better in the second half on this when the Lakers put a small on Jokic I thought that you know when they were switching that pick and roll I thought that early on the Nuggets were a little bit too passive with it but they got better at that over the course of the game yeah that was one of the big strategic issues where they're switching pretty much every pick and roll they're not going to let Murray get open they're not going to let Jokic get a pick and pop. He got a couple of those late. You know, I think he's was is kind of out of rhythm because he's not taking six or seven a game anymore. And, you know, he hit that huge one over AD where AD didn't really close out to him a little bit as the Nuggets were making that final frantic comeback late in the fourth. So that was, that was the only three-pointer that he hit. So I, I think the Lakers strategy largely is working pretty well. They did have some defensive breakdowns. Their rotations weren't as good in the third. I thought LeBron, despite the fact that he had two blocks, he had a couple of plays where he didn't rotate over as well as he could have rondo hasn't been the same defensive force that he was in the series against houston but this is the lakers i thought largely defended well enough denver doesn't really have enough shooting to really stress them out they got a lot of guys who are passing up shots I think the question of just what Vogel is going to do with his bigs is probably the biggest one. They started JaVale in both halves this time. I'm not really sure why. I don't know why they would have gone with, you know, they're great with Howard on the floor in the first half. So why not start Howard again in the second half? Granted, Howard had his issues in the second half, but he still, to me, is better than JaVale, who was negative two and 12 minutes and didn't really do much he's going to struggle to guard Jokic a little bit it's I realize they want to have a body and and an extra body on Jokic and they want JaVale to play with the unit that he's played with this whole time because it might mess him up to not do that but I think just rolling with either Howard or AD at center most of the way would probably be the way that I would go uh, going forward here um because I think now that the refs have kind of made their point on Howard fouling that they can that, that'll calm down a little bit but uh anything else lineup wise that you'd look at for the Lakers? Not particularly. I, th- I think that Kuzma was less consistent defensively in this one and forced a couple of shots offensively. But generally, I thought he played reasonably within the flow. There were a couple of times where he was opportunistic in those 80 non-LeBron minutes, especially at the end of the first. I thought that was, the to me, the best stretch that Kuzma played. They can lean on Markeith maybe a little bit more often, but not a ton. I understand the, yeah. the reluctance there. The, they did go with kind of a weird group with Markeith at center and LeBron at the four so no ad and no traditional center either which it didn't do a ton right 
Um, and, but no, yeah. I, I think the Lakers got in there. You know, Rondo, this wasn't quite as spectacular a game as he's had a couple in the playoffs, but I thought he was fine. You know, I didn't think he I didn't yeah. think his defensive effort was bad. He forced a couple of passes, but he had nine assists. So you, you can't be that's that's the Rondo package. It's, it's he, going he to had some one. pretty bad turnovers with yeah. five, five turnovers in 21 minutes. I mean, that's he tried that, to squeeze pretty, a couple in, which is which is a notorious Rondo thing. I mean, if you think about that, nine assists and five turnovers in 21 minutes. You know, in 21 minutes, you're probably going to have maybe 40 possessions or so, and that he either assisted or turned the ball over on 14 of the 40 possessions when he's in the game on on a team where you've got AD and LeBron also out there. Um, they tried to post LeBron up a lot early. LeBron did have 20 of their first 40 points, and then he really cooled off after that. Only finished with 26 and six turnovers. It really was not a good game for him. Only got to the foul line for four attempts. But I like them trying to post him up more. That's something that they can go to. They also, if it really gets into dire straits, they can go with more minutes for LeBron. Part of why he, I think he only played 36 was because when he was out of the game, they were killing it. So there wasn't really much impetus to force him back in. But they still have the option of ramping him up a little bit more as this series goes on. You might see that in a game three where they're really trying to go for the kill and end the series that they'll get pretty aggressive with his minutes. And he's been better defensively for not having to play 43 three minutes a game like he did when he was with the Cavs uh, back in 2018. Well, and worth noting with LeBron, I mean, so he was four of six on jump shots, threes and mid-rangers in the first half. And then he was zero for five in the second. And he took more jump shots than he did shots in the paint. Now he got a couple of free throws there as well. So it doesn't fully offset. And LeBron might be the best player ever that you that still has the like J.R. Smith principle or whoever you want to, whoever you want to use for this of like, you kind of want them to make a couple of jump shots early because he just thinks it, at, at certain moments in time, he thinks it's a better shot. And LeBron, sometimes he he can... The ones that frustrate me are when he settles while also having a mismatch. So the, you know, the Festus Azili above the break three-pointer is, you know, if it's late clock or a certain situation, yeah, that's totally fine. But when you have 14 on the clock and you have Nikola Jokic out there on the floor, like, you can do some serious damage there. That can be driving into the paint and getting a finish and getting an and one, or it can be getting somebody else open for a corner three or an above the break three. LeBron's an unbelievable pass. And he, I I thought that there were a few times where he took his foot off the gas pedal. And I thought part of the reason why was because he's like, well, I'm making my jump shots. And some of those went in, you know, like some of those settles went in early, but you you lean on the overall production on on those shots. And he's, it's not the best part of his game. Yeah, but the the floor is pretty clogged. He's going to have to hit some of those at some point. The Nuggets also, I don't recall them doing nearly as much getting Jokic further out on the floor and pick and roll. And the Lakers didn't run a ton of pick and roll at Nikola Jokic either. Uh, They did it more when Rondo was in the game, not so much when LeBron was the main ball handler. And the Nuggets just packing the paint a little bit more and forcing the Lakers to beat them from the outside. 36 three-point attempts is a lot for this Lakers team. And I think the Nuggets want to continue to make them beat them from the outside because the, the Lakers killed them in the paint in the first game and now the Lakers shot it extremely well in that first game I think Seth had the stat that they were 10 out of 13 on open threes in the first game but to only get 13 open threes was not that much but they're giving everything up in the paint and they also did a nice job the Nuggets partially because they're getting fouled on every possession on offense of keeping the Lakers out of transition a lot more particularly in the second half the running game for a lot of teams really will slow down 
in the second half. So if the Nuggets, the longer the Nuggets hang around in games, I think the better their chances are. I mean, obviously that that's a dumb thing to say, but what I mean is that I just think that the Nuggets generally are going to play better in second halves than first halves in this series. So uh, if they're tied at halftime, I think you like their chances a, a lot more. Um, got a couple more notes here. Anything else that you wanted to mention? Uh, not particularly. I mean, Caruso had a couple of highlights, but I, I thought that his possession by possession impact was actually, you know, he had a couple of, of good deflections on the defensive end. And, and really, I think that is where his va- his primary value lies is just being a, being a nuisance and making opportunistic passes and not really doing, not making many mistakes. And I thought he was fine. Um, Jokic on those post-ups when he does get the ball low against the switch I think he really needs to go to the quick spin move right away which he usually is pretty good at but just holding and waiting there I I think the Lakers are too good at rotating behind the play and part of why this strategy that they're going to work so well of switching and getting someone onto Jokic who's not his size is because you still have a rim protector either AD or the center behind the play in a lot of these situations or LeBron who generally does an okay job there so they feel comfortable that even if Jokic is able to back down against a smaller player that they're going to have help available or if Murray is able to drive past the big switching onto him that they'll have help available there as well uh we saw a lot of AD going one-on-one against Jokic, and I I want to say he scored on maybe like six out of seven of those possessions. I was kind of loosely counting it, so that number might be a little bit off. But And he, some of those were some pretty difficult jump shots that he took, face-up, jab-step type of moves. But that's certainly something that the Lakers can look to. And I think that the way Davis is shooting the mid-range jumper right now and the fact that he knows that if he makes a hard move and elevates that Jokic is not going to be able to stop him. And then he's got the hard drive to his left if he wants it also. So that's something they can definitely go back to, try to put some fouls on Jokic or uh, score. I mean, AD definitely has the advantage one-on-one in that matchup. Oh, I've thought of one other thing I want to mention. Yeah. The Lakers committed a bunch of fouls early in the fourth quarter, and I thought that really helped the Nuggets kind of get back into it. They were in the bonus, I think it was about the seven-minute mark. And so then that turned about, that turned some non-shooting fouls into shooting fouls. And so Jamal Murray got a couple... Um, and the Lakers, generally speaking, especially in those backup heavy lineups, there aren't really that many reasons to foul. You know, like fouling is, you know, kind of in certain circumstances, it's a last resort. It's a panic thing. And yeah, Jamal was out there for some of that time. I, I, actually, he was, I believe he was out there for all that time because he sat in the third. It, it wasn't like they were getting beaten and doing it. It was just some lazy, like there was some some sloppy sloppiness. And I don't think they, they should bail the Nuggets out, especially when Jokic is off the floor. All right, well, that will do it for today's episode. Don't forget, you could have gotten this episode ad-free if you are a Dunked On Prime subscriber, or you can get our other at least four pods per week by signing up. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to dunkedon.supportingcast.fm slash join. And don't forget about Hollinger and Duncan as well. If you're looking for some more of our free content, that's available. If you want to subscribe to that, that's usually coming out on Mondays these days as John and I kind of take a more evergreen look at what's going on in the playoffs or and obviously we'll get into plenty of front office stuff as well and if you haven't subscribed yet and you're in financial difficulty email us dunked on prime at gmail.com and we do have special pricing available for people who are in more difficult financial circumstances talk to y'all next time reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 